We knew Mad-Eye was trouble when he walked in. You're listening to the Quibbler Podcast, the Harry Potter book club for the fashionably late. Mad-Eye Moody? Isn't he that nutter? He was an aura, one of the best. A dark wizard catcher. Half the cells in Azkaban are full because of him. He made himself loads of enemies, though. The families of people he caught, mainly. And I heard he's been getting really paranoid in his old age. Doesn't trust anyone anymore. Sees dark wizards everywhere. I'm Heather Price-Wright. And I'm Alex Ballenberg. And this week, we are still, and forever and ever, in Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. This week's chapters are Aboard the Hogwarts Express and the Triwizard Tournament. Uh, generally, you would hear spoilers in this podcast. However, literally nothing fucking happens this week. <laughs> so we it's might... Really, these chapters are really chill. They're very... They're the only chill chapters in this book. And there's still some straight up maximalism. But mostly there's no plot in here. So We need it chill because it's very hot outside. Uh, yeah, it's hot af. So you'll also hear cursing. Um, and probably some spoilers, but not necessarily spoilers for this book because nothing fucking happens in these chapters. You will also hear some adult themes. This week's adult themes are obstruction of justice, getting caught in the rain, hunger strikes, crazy eyes, and big old crushes. Before we have you tell us what happened this week, because so little happened, we are going to do a little bit of a mailbag. So we have gotten some beautiful, smart, funny, amazing emails and direct messages on various social media outlets over the past few weeks. And I definitely always love getting these and wanted to share some of them. Yeah, they've been really good. They've been so good. is super smart and nice. Yeah, you guys like just know what the fuck you're talking about on all matters. And we are deeply impressed. So if you have not sent us an email or a message of any sort and you have something that you would like to tell us um, or perhaps you're new or perhaps you would just like to say hello which we would love you can do so at quibblerpodcast at gmail.com or you can message us on facebook which is slash quibblerpodcast twitter is a good place twitter i check the instagram direct messages regularly so wherever you want to find us do so and uh yeah take it away or train an owl to carry us I actually, a handwritten message. That would scare the shit out of me. That would be amazing. Oh, can you? Okay, it seems like it would be amazing, but can you imagine how scary it would be if a, an actual fucking owl showed up and started like... With a letter? Yeah, no, that would be baller. If you're capable of that... You would feel weird for a few seconds and then you'd be like, I can die now because yeah. this is the greatest thing that has ever happened to me. Also, whichever of you manages in that, you should probably take over this podcast. Like, <laughs> we hand over the keys to the sad non-castle to you because that would be unbelievable. It would go viral. Yeah, it would be super cool. It would be super viral. I would say, like, this hero trained an owl to deliver a letter I to just, a Harry Potter podcast. It honestly depresses me with every fiber of my being that it would go viral is a thing that we say about things that are truly extraordinary these days. Like, that's not why it's cool. So our first owl post is from listener Emi. I, apolo- I hope that's how you say your name. I apologize if I'm mispronouncing it. On Twitter. 
and she wrote in about the economics episode, which inspired a lot of interesting emails. Yeah, you like, guys had a lot of thoughts about the goblins, yeah, which I'm is sorry. not surprising. I'm, I'm glad that people. I'm glad that people like joined us in geeking out on wizard monetary policy. It's true. Uh, so Amy writes. I've just been listening to the new episode on Wizarding Economics, and you were talking about the goblins and the hugely anti-Semitic way in which they are portrayed. I don't know if it was intentional or if I'm reading too much into it, but the first sort of integration of Jews into secular society during the diaspora was when the Jews were given the task of handling the money, as they were the ones with the skills and the people in the communities that the Jews were trying to join into at that time often thought of handling money as a sort of untrustworthy profession, although I'm not 100% sure of this. So perhaps this was a nod to the early days of Jewish oppression mirrored through the goblins. They also weren't originally allowed to do any other jobs, again, like the goblins, and were hugely separate from Gentile society as they were simply not safe or accepted at that time, which again seems to mirror the goblins' situation. I think that's a really smart point. I do think that the the goblins are a commentary on like societal exclusion and it's interesting how like people with a really vital task are all like simultaneously valued and ostracized oh yeah so i I did a little bit of reading uh on like usury laws in medieval europe and there was like a big debate in the christian church about whether charging interest was like ethical at all but of course in order to have a functioning like economy you need to be able to like borrow money and the only way to make borrowing money work is to like charge interest uh because that gives incentives so although is there interest in the wizarding economy i don't don't, think so yeah i think it's like a straight cash economy Well, well anyway but yeah yeah or um like sanitary workers in some like cultures are ostracized but at the same time you need somebody yeah, to clean like, up your I like forget, sewer like, systems yeah and i forget stuff. who like the untouchables are in like places like india or in ancient rome people that handled bodies had to live outside the city limits more thoughts on goblins comes from holly on facebook she says hey just listen to your episode on magical economy and had a few thoughts These are primarily on Goblin's Statute of Secrecy and Voldemort's financial motivations. As for Goblin's, I think JK did this purposely and as a commentary for the us-versus-them binary that the people in power set upon a system. The wizards in power wanted to keep said power, even though they aren't necessarily as powerful as non-human magical creatures. Goblin's, house elves, centaurs, they are all powerfully magical in ways that wizards can never be. Goblins and house elves have been denied the use of wands, but unlike a wizard who generally needs a wand to concentrate their magic, these non-human creatures can work magic without a tool. Denying them a wand isn't about keeping wizardry pure, it's about keeping the people who could dethrone you disempowered. Anyway, the us-versus-them binary has created a culture where the goblins cannot work with humans with any level of trust. Griphook betrays the trio in the last book. He has been let down by wizards for a lifetime. He as a goblin may not necessarily be an immoral creature, but his species has been taught through the centuries to value their own survival and growth over any human relationships. Ron had even wanted to trick him from the moment the deal was made, so the goblin didn't introduce distrust into the relationship. The wizard did. 
I work in education, and we're attempting to become more culturally sensitive to students, but the wizards fail at recognizing goblin culture. Goblins have different beliefs on ownership than wizards, but wizards fail to recognize or honor their cultural beliefs. Professor Binns is the only place wizards academically learn about goblins, and as he puts his classes to sleep, there are generations of wizards with no clue about goblin culture or history. The second thought I had was on the statute of secrecy, which is not original to the wizarding community. It was imposed at a later point in time, so the oldest pureblood families would have had ancestors who interacted with muggles in unknown ways friendships, business, etc. Those oldest families would have had access to muggle money, and given the fact that those interactions were regular, they would have kept the muggle currency and not exchanged a bulk of it. Enter the statute of sequency and potential exchange and exchange rate. Old families can now exchange muggle money and gain mass amounts of gold. Living in the wizarding world is not expensive, and they save a majority of it for the few remaining families to have access to today. I like that theory. Yeah, that's really, really <laughs> interesting. And one last really interesting point on Voldemort. Oh, and Voldemort's anger over the system. He comes from an extremely old wizard family and should therefore have tons of money. Only the Gaunts, Voldemort's wizarding uh, ancestors, squander their money. He biologically came from a very wealthy muggle family, but is given nothing. By all accounts, he should have had huge financial resources once he entered the magical world, but instead he had nothing and entered a system that limited his ability to make anything. He applies for a job at the school, a safe, secure position that would give him financial stability, and he is denied told to get more experience, but he lacks any financial resource to enable him to travel around and get experience. He is pushed in a hole that a lot of college kids today are pushed into. You are in debt, have no available funds, but are told to get experience at minimum wage before getting a position you actually desire. So Voldemort's just a disgruntled millennial. <laughs> Voldemort's just a millennial. Yeah. <laughs> um, I love every single one of those points. I think that your point about goblins learning that distrust for self-preservation is really well taken because I think it's really easy and I think it happens obviously a lot in these books to paint an other as sort of like inherently mistrustful and not trustworthy and it's like wizards and humans have a really hard time hearkening back to how they initially created those climates and cultures. Right. Well, I'm thinking there's clearly like a really highly developed like honor system among goblins like they're not immoral but if you owe them something they're gonna get it because we, as we see with ludo bagman later in in this uh, book i mean yo there's some pound of flesh undertones here like really truly it's such a shylock narrative yeah i guess you're like right. that's actually the merchant of venice is just about like different codes of honor and ethics like crashing against one another and when those things mix with generations and generations of bigotry, it gets really toxic and dangerous. Yeah. So basically, I feel like the grip hook story is like kind of a an interesting like Merchant of Venice retelling. Anyway, yeah, those are awesome points. And the and the centaurs obviously highly distrust wizards. Yeah, I mean, for and reasons that we don't quite know. House elves would but house elf subjugation is so complete that we don't actually really get much house elf voice but obviously like Dobby who's the one that we have access to his like inner life in full is really mistrustful of the of like bad wizards Dobby has sort of bought into the dichotomy of good wizards and bad wizards and we'll talk about that you know later on but that those were awesome points also like I love the point about Voldemort is just like I can't fucking get experience (laughs) is that why he's dismissed I thought Dumbledore didn't hire him because he just looks sketchy as hell because he's like starting to get his weird snake like it's like either profiling or 
it's that he's not experienced Okay, but enough. people start looking like snakes when they're super evil in the wizarding world. Yeah, I mean, fair enough. He wants to become Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher to, like, indoctrinate students, right? Yeah. That's how I read it. I think so. Well, we'll get to I that do part. Love, I do love the idea, though, of Vol... I, I love the like, image oh, of... Oh, you haven't taught before. It's like there's one fucking school. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I haven't to taught before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. So okay. That's like Dumbledore's... That's Dumbledore's, like, only good human resources decision is not hiring Voldemort. Except that then it curses his human resources decisions for time and memoriam because then that role is cursed. That's true. All right, so, fair enough. But it's really good that Voldemort wasn't a teacher. They couldn't give him like an unpaid internship. And that's like Hagrid's job, basically, right? He's like an eternal unpaid intern. I mean, Hagrid is like a servant who is grateful for his servitude. So, whoa, there are some issues there. I think that was a conversation I saw on Twitter recently, too. Anyway, okay, this one is an email and I love it. This is from our listener named Darcy. Darcy, I am not sure what your gender identity is, so I'm going to call you they. Let us know if you so choose. But anyway, so Darcy says, Dear Heather and Alex, um, the beginning of it is just compliments. So I don't, thank you. They're very nice, but I'm not going to read the like top half of us. It's, It's just like very sweet and we appreciate it. Then they go on to say, so shameful confession, Snape is my favorite character in the series. That's not shameful. That's totally understandable. Snape's an amazing character. character. No, feel no shame. And when I was sitting at my really boring job today, listening to you guys talk about wizarding economics, I started to think about it in relation to Snape and his childhood. We don't know too much really about his family, just some glimpses. I had wondered for a while why his mother, who was from an old pure blood family, according to the Harry Potter wiki, would run off with a muggle. The flashes we see of Snape's unhappy childhood don't jive too well with the idea of a love match for his parents. But your idea of economic incentives for wizards and witches to marry muggles made things click a little for me. Eileen Snape, nay Prince, was presumably sorted into Slytherin, again, according to the wiki. We don't have any info on their family, but it may be that despite being pure blood, they were not rich. Maybe they fell on hard times like the Gaunts, or they just were never rich like the Weasleys. If Eileen was thinking of her future in purely economic terms, she may have jumped at the chance to marry a muggle and possibly improve her lot in life for herself and her offspring. It is a pretty Slytherin move to marry specifically for economic reasons rather than for love. That could be at least a piece of why their home life is so unhappy. There was never any love there to begin with. I wonder how common this phenomenon would have been. Maybe there would be a whole line of self-help books for people in dysfunctional wizard muggle marriages for the children of those marriages. Surely there would be a reality show if wizards ever got around to making TV shows. Thank you for indulging me by reading this. You're so welcome. People in my real life look at me like I'm an insane when I go off about this shit. Anyway, thanks again for your podcast. You make my day every time you put out an episode. Thank you. And there's an amazing PS that's like, Not going to be relevant to everybody, but like a few of us are going to think that this is a hilarious P.S. P.S. says Darcy. I am from Tucson and a U of A grad, and it always makes me happy to hear you guys mention my hometown. Did you know the mayor made them bring back watermelon EGs early this year? (laughs) Look what you're missing. So everything about this email is fucking perfect. Lemon EGs is my favorite. That's like Um, basic though, right? Yeah, I like the watermelon. Did they bring it back because of the heat wave? Guys, if you're not from a very specific place, which is Tucson, Arizona, you may not know that EG's is like 
basically they're slushies. Yeah. It's like um, a fast food chain, but the only reason you go there is to get is these, these They have these slushies. Incredibly like delicious. Eponymous slushies. They yeah. might have a name, but everyone's just like... I think they're just I'll, called EGs. I'll have a lemon EGs. Um, and they do these like specialty flavors every summer, and the watermelon ones are lit. And it was just like so mind-bendingly hot in Tucson recently that I guess the mayor was like, okay, we gotta do something. <laughs> made them bring back watermelon. That rules. That's so Tucson. I can't stand it. Uh, but enough about EGs. Your government at work. <laughs> I think it's really interesting how the second you start to think about money, all of these like family dynamics get make more sense, which is so like true. I mean, I feel like there's all kinds of statistics that money is like one of the chief things that like yeah. causes divorces and stuff. It's like a huge source of tension in relationships. So it's, it stands to reason. It's there do seem to be a lot of marriages where one partner doesn't know the other is magical until after the marriage because Seamus talks about that in Sorcerer's Stone that his dad didn't find out his mother was a witch until like after they were married. Yeah, isn't his dad the milkman? I think so. That's so cute. (laughs) But I love the idea of people like trying to like get access to like to muggle to, capital. To British pounds. But I feel like that's probably not in like Rowling's grand like well, scheme. But what are we doing here? That's Adding true. to it. No, you're right. This is what fandoms <laughs> do. This is what fandoms but create. But I, I love this insane theory. It's fucking uh, that awesome. we've all created and a lot of you uh, have so nicely bought into. Oh my and, gosh. And you guys have like and expan- expanded, and expanded and extended it eternally. You've you have ex- these amazing you, ideas. I know. Everyone's expanded our theory of uh, wizarding economics. Um, okay. So awesome. Here's another one. Isn't Snape poor though? The Like Snape's family. Like I think we're meant to... I think we're meant that, to think that he's that, kind of shabby. And they live in kind of a dodgy like part of town. Spinner's yeah. End and But uh, maybe, maybe even his muggle father wasn't like wealthy right he just his yeah no that's but he's true. wealthy when his pounds are converted to galleons yeah yo um okay here's this was one of my favorite ones we ever got this is from a listener named quinn whose gender identity i also don't know so sorry quinn you guys have really like unisex names quinn and darcy those are both very cute names for a man or a woman but i don't know which you are so apologies or something else or right or non-binary folks That is very true. Actually, those are both really good non-binary names. Anyway, hi guys. So Quinn says, hey y'all. This is funny that they said y'all because they're British. So adorable. Thank you for speaking in the vernacular of my people. (laughs) Hey y'all. So this is somewhat late, but I just finished the first six episodes of the pod, i.e. the Philosopher's Stone. Aw, sorcerer, but no, that's cute. And I feel like I can probably clear up some of your quibbles. But the whole house point system being totally arbitrary. This is a real thing that lots of schools, it has a bunch of O's in it, lots of schools in the UK have, especially boarding schools. In boring muggle schools, points were allocated for real things and not random, but it is totally a real thing and teachers were absolutely biased. I distinctly remember getting 45 points for a 50-50 maths test and my friend getting 30 for 50-50, because everyone knew his house had cheated at house rugby the weekend before. <laughs> and then it's just, and really? 
What even is the point? There isn't any, except house pride, but damn, I'm a grown-ass adult and I can rekindle the fires of house cup rivalry. I love this email so much, Quinn. Also, on Quidditch. In some of the later books, we find out that the points scored in Quidditch are important to the cup standings. I don't remember exactly where, but there's a point where Gryffindor can't beat another house unless there's something like 100 points up before Harry catches the snitch. So presumably the rules are never properly explained to us. Or, dot dot dot, to Harry. <laughs> very funny. Again, who are you? You rule. This is a very funny email. Honestly, the whole sport and rules thing around Quidditch is a lot like British boarding schools as well. True, interhouse rivalries get damned vicious and sport is absolutely a medium for it. I love that maths is plural and sport is singular. I just love this email. I mean, I know that those are just how people in the UK talk, but just wanted to drop some e-owl news about how British boarding schools make literally no sense. Pumpkins and penguins, Quinn. Ugh, I love you, Quinn. We, you, that rules. What a nice sign off. Yeah, very sweet. And that's hilarious. Actually, also in This Is How Things Are in the UK news, my sister who lives in London has told me that sports betting also is not only legal but extremely popular. Much more acceptable. Yeah. Um, you do have to be here. over 18. So Fred and George are still like that's a little bit squidgy. But y'all do bet on sports. So that's funny. <laughs> we bet on some sports here. I mean, you can go to like. Like the tracks. Or, or Vegas. But I guess it's like you know, more widespread that. that you would do it like just at a match. Right, right. One more slightly longer one, but I'm like obsessed with this email. This is from a while ago, but it's amazing. This is from Rose. And the subject line is good Slytherins. And the first line of the email is, bet that subject line caught Heather's attention with <laughs> a winky face. And girl, it did. So Rose says, so I have a quibble about Slytherins. I think it was a rare weak spot in JK's largely profound and empathetic writing that the Slytherins are all dismissed as neo-Nazis, both villainized by everyone else throughout the books and then essentially banished from Hogwarts during the final battle, which is a really, really, really good point. It's too broad and TBH actually reminds me of the superior and dismissive way liberals treated conservatives leading up to the last presidential election, which resulted in Democrats being so shocked at the results, myself included. Um, yeah, word. That's... That is also an incredibly insightful comparison, and I love it. She says, trust me, I have spent a lot of time thinking about my Hogwarts house, us too, and went from thinking I was a Ravenclaw because I'm brainy and love to learn to realizing I'm truly a Hufflepuff. Because while learning interests me, it's not what I care about, not what drives me, which is social-emotional intelligence, what I consider the hallmark of a Hufflepuff. But the funny thing is, the more I thought about it, the more I realized that the two houses that were my closest contenders for a match weren't Hufflepuff and Ravenclaw or even Hufflepuff and Gryffindor, though I think there is a lot of quiet bravery in trusting yourself and being vulnerable as a Hufflepuff, which, what a sweet and beautiful sentence. Um, this is a beautifully written email also. Rose, this is, this is truly lovely. But Hufflepuff and Slytherin. This is because aside from empathy and EQ, I realized my strongest driving characteristics are ambition, not in competition with others, but in my true and persevering quest to be my best self and self-fullness. I don't say selfishness because here I mean self-action that doesn't take away from anyone else, i.e. self-care, setting healthy boundaries, saying no to stuff out of self-respect, putting myself first, not in a way that puts others down, but that is acknowledging a deep and healthy self-love. This is an amazing and beautiful email and you are an incredibly self-actualized and lovely person. I can actually see the Slytherins 
being the ones posting Facebook quotes about loving yourself, letting go of toxic relationships and situations, and genuinely prioritizing your self-care, self-growth, and self-actualization. More ambitiously than most people who struggle with taking care of themselves first and saying no when they need to. Basically, Slytherins doing them, living their best lives, and not apologizing to a damn person for it. I think it's a shame that this beautiful side of Slytherin's key attributes wasn't explored and would love to hear y'all's perspective. Love the podcast. It's the best. Rose. This is one of the lovelier things I have read about the kind of like duality of Slytherin nature ever. And I think this like I learned so much from this email and I think that's a really, really, really profound point. Yes. I would have liked to see more. I would love to see. Slytherins. Well, I mean like we talked – on like the second episode about how we think that um, Beyonce is a Slytherin. And that's somebody I think who's a really good example of this side of Slytherin nature. Which is like a true abiding self-understanding and self-love. Um, and not a narcissism but but just a sense of, of prioritizing your own like care and worth. Which it does seem like Slytherins would be significantly better at than any of the other houses. And we have a bunch of characters in Harry Potter that are non-Slytherins who are really, really, really poor at prioritizing their own needs. That is not a skill that any of our heroes or heroines really have. We saw Hermione just completely fall to pieces last book because she is poor at prioritizing self-care and her own needs. And Ron is kind of selfish, but more in like an immature way. Right. So I love this point. I think this is really lovely. I feel... (sighs) Dumbledore has this line in Deathly Hallows where he says he thinks we sort too soon. It is interesting. So so it's like Rose knows this about herself now, but where would you have been sorted when you were 11? Right, right. Um, I wonder where I would have been sorted at 11. I don't know. It's I don't know either. That's kind of the problem with sorting, right? You're like 30 different people in your life. Well, and especially when you're 11, you're 30 different people at once. Mm-hmm. Like identity is so up in the air as at that age. Actually, later on, we're going to talk about sorting because it happens in this chapter. So, I mean, you know, stay tuned another 10 minutes, but... Sorting's not like destiny, though. No, I mean, but I do... Sort of, it sort of is to the extent that it, it's like... I mean, it creates your whole social world. Yeah. But I do think that you're right, that one of the biggest oversights in these books is that we don't get positive portrayals of Slytherins. I would have loved to see a Slytherin friend, or frenemy even, I think um, would have added... A lot to this book. I do. Well, that's one thing that I will give credit to Cursed Child for. Right. Is you have positive depictions of Slytherins. Yeah. Uh, which this series desperately needs. Because Slytherin is such an interesting house and a lot of people identify. Oh, as- yeah. So many people have Slytherin like in their Twitter bio. Yeah. I, I just. Uh, a lot of people self-identify as Slytherin. I have. I feel like my crossover is probably Ravenclaw Slytherin. So I don't think I'm Slytherin at all. Yeah, I think that's true in good ways and yeah. not bad ways, but like whatever. There's there's strengths and weaknesses to each of these personality types. But I mean, to be fair, the other problem is that I think Slytherin sort of like self perpetuates a certain kind. Like it is right. also cultural. It's like getting hired at a really toxic company. Yeah, you're right. And you become you sort of like to fit into a culture like you do take on some of the toxicity of the your surroundings. So even if you get some some little Slytherin children that have all these really beautiful positive attributes um and you put them into this kind of like Snape is Snape, not Snape like Snape's a good example because he's a highly imaginative child uh, right. as we see from 
his potions book in Half Blood Prince. We're getting yeah. way ahead of ourselves. He's thoughtful. He forms he's intelligent. A with a Muggleborn of like a really deep, profound he's, friendship. He's capable of love. Uh, he also has. He has a lot of self-regard, but it's fairly accurate self-regard. He's like, I'm smart as fuck, and... Yeah, and he's it's right. Tr- he's, it's correct. He's, like, the, he's the most qualified professor at the school. Besides, but, like, maybe... I mean, McGonagall is, like, pretty yeah. damn good at her job, but... Uh, but then you tell these kids that they're, like... I mean, even the Sorting Hats song is always, like... And then you have the bad guys. <laughs> so, right, you put these kids in this environment where, first of all, like, I, I have to... Like, a lot of Slytherins are bad guys like a lot of Slytherins do end up with at least a pretty healthy interest in the dark arts so first of all you're like you're kind of smushing together these bright ambitious kids with with sinister kids like Draco's sinister um I guess he's like kind of redeemed but like he's a dick bag all through school mm-hmm. and I have to say I think Snape in this particular generation of Harry Potter I think Snape has a lot to do with the character of Slytherins because he's He's really, he's not a giving or a generous head of house. He plays favorites in a way that disadvantages Slytherins because they have unhealthy and unreasonable self-regard and they don't have to work hard. Right. And he, at the same time as he plays favorites, he doesn't offer them any actual like emotional support or like treat them as individuals. So like Snape's a bad head of house. Because Snape just has nothing to give emotionally because he can't he's be so that scarred. bad ahead of a house though because they won the house cup like what seven years in well, a row. No, he's a great head of house in terms of like churning out wins. Yeah, but he's not like a giving Edward or empathetic Cost. or like nourishing head of house. He's the Travis Kalanick of. <laughs> I mean, basically that's of what Hogwarts I'm saying. Hogwarts houses. Slytherin is the <laughs> Uber of Hogwarts. So like not evil, but just problematic. <laughs> Um, okay, and then we have one more really short message. This is from Kirsten, who we've heard from and read from before. So she sends us amazing emails. She says, hey, hey, love this week's episode with a shout out to David Sedaris and the Fat Bottom Cauldron's Queen mashup. Excellent work. Thank you on both of those counts. Actually, funny story. A bunch of you loved the Fat Bottom Cauldron's mashup. And I thought it was incredibly stupid. And Alex made it. And I was like, Ugh, Alex, like, nobody's going to like that. And he put it in any way. And obviously, you guys love it. So this is my I on air. Know. You didn't tell me that people liked that. I did. I read you this email. I don't recall. Okay. People loved it. Okay, great. People absolutely loved it. <laughs> this is my public mea culpa to you. I was absolutely wrong. That was very funny. And I'm sorry that I thought it was stupid. I hope we don't get a cease and desist. Well, you know. I think it's parody. I think it's parody. I think it's fine. I'll have my lawyers review it. Okay, so that was the first half of the email. And then Kirsten says, Your conversation about the Weasleys as potentially a Catholic family reminded me of my friend's blog post about this very topic. She is Catholic and has several other reasons beyond the larger family size that the Weasleys could be Catholic. Thought you might be interested in rating the blog post as well. So it's an it's a wonderful post. Um, it's interesting to me that Catholics themselves have like identified this. I guess what I kind of wondered if it was like an offensive comparison, but apparently there are Catholics who have noted that the Weasleys have a lot of markers of it. We're going to put this link in the newsletter so you guys can read it for yourselves, but it's really nice. And it's a lot of it is about how they embody a lot of like Catholic values. It says they practice Catholic hospitality, corporal works of mercy. This is a very, very, very lovely blog post. And I really love this. 
She says, reason number four, there are some solid saints named in their family tree. Arthur, Ronald, Charlie, Charles, William for Bill and George are all saint names. Molly is a nickname for Mary. Ginevra, Ginny is a variation on Genevieve. On Genevieve. Um, and Fred is a nickname for Frederick. And shall we assume that Percy is named after Bishop Thomas Percy? Excellent. Or update, clever commenters pointed out that Percy's middle name is Ignatius. That's a solid saint name if ever there was one. So this is a really nice blog post. Oh, it also, one of the other ones is Molly and Arthur are committed to the vocation of marriage, which I think is really nice. Seriously. And very true. Yeah. No, they have a really, really, they actually have like hashtag goals marriage in a lot of ways. So I guess that is something that Catholics have noticed too. We'll put the the full thing in the newsletter. Well, Roland is not, the, one of the things she pays attention to the most is names, so. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. No, they're, I think them That's all having. That's clearly not an accident. Yeah. Ignatius, clearly they're meant to be Catholic. And yeah, Frederick and George and Genevieve and all of them are really, really, really clear, not even encoded saints' names. Especially because so many people in the wizard world don't have like really recognizable muggle names, like Draco and Lucius and Mundungus. Unless there's a Saint Mundungus. Maybe there is. Who knows? Um, But I feel like the fact that you have these, all these really solid kind of like Anglo-Saxon saint names is a yeah it's a hint so that was a lot of mail but I hope you guys enjoyed it please keep sending us posts or please keep sending us messages and emails and stuff um honest to god we love them it always like it moves me like to tears sometimes I cry a lot just in general not about this but just about everything um but I get tearful when I get these really cool emails I can't believe that anybody listens to this thing yeah it's really neat it's pretty like I don't know the word I'm looking for. Uh, Just thank you. Filled with gratitude. Yeah. Hashtag grateful. Hashtag grateful. Um, but actual deeply grateful. So thanks, guys. Um, now that we've basically made a full episode, tell us what happened this week. In this week's chapters, everybody gets on a train. They go to school. Dinner is served. And there's going to be a big murder tournament. That's what happens. Really, it's a chill, like we said, it's yeah. a chill few chapters. They take a train um, to school. They take it, yeah, they take a train. Really, the main action of the chapters are described in the chapter titles. It's aboard the Hogwarts Express and the Triwizard Tournament. Plot wise, Amos Diggory's fucking head shows up in a fireplace, says that Mad Eye Moody has sicked dustbins on. An intruder. A possible intruder, and that Arthur has to get him off on a minor charge for mis- like misuse of muggle artifacts or whatever, because Moody has to start his job the next day. Uh, Molly f- teleports a piece of toast into Amos's mouth. Molly hires cabs. I don't think you need to do all these details, actually. That they take? No. Yeah, see, like, this is all, like, the most, mo- this is, like, mostly logistics. Yeah. Take the train... Draco's fucking mouthing off again about some mysterious event that's going to happen at the school. We find out that Mad-Eye Moody is this, like, crazy wizard that was, like, a great dark wizard catcher, but he's gotten super paranoid because he's made a lot of enemies in his day. It's really fucking rainy. 
Yeah, Every- it's mostly logistics and weather. Yeah, everybody gets soaked. Peeves throws some water balloons at people coming when they're coming back into the Great Hall. He's hacked off because he couldn't go to the feast. Uh, everybody's waiting for the feast to start. Ron is super impatient. Another example of the hedonic treadmill. He's like, where's my feast that's going to magically appear in front of me? Not, it's amazing that a feast magically appears. He's like impatient for it now. So everybody's like totally just sunk into this Hogwarts thing and used to it by now. There is... A sorting. There's a sorting. A hat decides everyone's self-worth and value and assigns them to uh, houses. <laughs> uh, it's always funny that the kids are all freaked out that the hat is gonna... Well, because they don't know what it's gonna be. Right, Remember, gonna Harry do. thinks no, that it's he's gonna have to do some kind of task. Wow. Wizards are good at keeping secrets. That no yeah. one knows that this, like, fucking hat is gonna read their minds. No, they don't. Um... Maddie shows say, up. Yeah, thunder and lightning. Da da da. Motherfucking Mad Eye Moody. Oh, Hermione finds out from nearly headless Nick that that house elves are the ones who make the Hogwarts food. It just doesn't appear out of nowhere because Peeves like fucked the kitchens up when he was throwing his hissy fit. So Hermione doesn't really want to eat anything because she's like slave labor made this dinner. Um, Once again, Alex has told us. Literally every sentence of these two chapters. Oh, and then there's the try with. Then Dumbledore's like, yo, Quidditch is canceled, but something even crazier than Quidditch is gonna happen. We're gonna have the Tri Wizard Tournament hosting international schools, Durmstrang and Bobaton. I don't, I don't know how to say it. Uh, Bobaton? Bobaton. <laughs> but you can only enter it if you're 17 because it was really dangerous and they had to cancel it because the death toll got too high so all the kids are like scheming about how they can enter this tournament because you win eternal glory and a thousand galleons which has a purchasing power roughly equivalent to 49,000 US dollars by so you our win calculation a, you win a salary yeah you win a year of like a mid like a lower yeah mid level employee employee somewhere i don't know you basically it's more than a blogger that's would make. A, that's a good salary. Yeah. $49,000 is a lot of money, especially if you're, I don't know, especially if you don't if live in New York City. Yeah, if you're 17. Or if you're fucking 17 you years old. you live in Ottery St. Catchpole or whatever, uh, that's pretty good. And Harry goes to bed fantasizing about winning the Tri-Wizard Tournament. And he sees one face in the cheering crowd stands out above all the others. And it's Cho Chang. Blissfully drifts off to sleep, clutching and, his bread and handle. Oh. And yeah, that's literally everything that happened. Yeah, like these chapters are weird. That was too. That was no. That was too detailed. Is what I'm trying to tell you. That was still too detailed. That was so. That was every sentence. That was much shorter recap than we usually. Well, do. I know because less happened. Yeah, I guess you're right. We are gonna have to do some exercises. All right. <laughs> I'm actually really kidding. It's just like it's right. now it's just something I browbeat you about as a is, as a humorous as a bit. bit. As a bit. Okay. Um, yeah, that's what happens. So since these are just sort of bridge expository chapters, we will return to the pensieve, which is where we just drop little shimmery thoughts into a basin of wisdom. Oh, 
Um, somebody wrote in to tell us it's pronounced pensive. And they also told us that it was a play on words, which like was cute because like we know. Um, it's a C. It's like a C, I think right? It's, I, think I think it's, it's a pen- pensive, like it's a play on two words. Like the word pensive and the and like sieve, like a, in a kitchen. So it is a pen. It's a pensive. I think it's a pensive. I don't know. Pensive. Whatever. Jim Dale says pensive. First, okay. into the pensive. I'm pulling out some glittery thought matter, and it's ghosts. So, <laughs> and ha- it's, it's ghosts. Go- and it's ghosts. Topic issue number one: ghosts. Um, what is that from? McLaughlin Group. Everyone who listens to this is way too young to uh, to know the McLaughlin Group. It was like the OG political talk show. John McLaughlin would be like... Oh, there's a really good SNL parody yeah. of it. Issue number one. Ghosts. I don't know. My dad listens. Yeah, he might think that's funny. He would funny. think that's funny. <laughs> so we haven't, we haven't visited them in a while. Uh, nearly headless Nick is telling Hermione about how... Uh, fucking Peeves is like wreaking havoc and they he because he wants to come to the feast and so they have like a ghost council to like hash out whether Peeves should be allowed to come to the feast I guess clearly this like it's funny they have a ghost council it is it's also funny that they have like jobs also Peeves isn't like a soul of anyone he's like weirdly this other supernatural being who as we learned earlier kind of like has metastasized from like the like urges of teens teens um you know he's just sort of this like malevolent spirit he's just sort of like this yeah this like spirit that comes from like feelings uh <laughs> and the he's fat, a feelings ghost but so yeah he's yeah so i like that the fat fryer wants to give him a cha- chance that's like so hufflepuff it is the fr- like they've been burned so clearly this happens every year well and here's an and- example of like a positive <laughs> slytherin attribute because the fucking bloody baron is like nah dog he fucks everything up and so he like he like does the whole being the bad guy thing, um, but he's right. To everyone's benefit. Yeah, no, he's the only one that like takes this shit seriously. And nearly a headless Nick is just such a Gryffindor. He's just like a fatuous dick. <laughs> he like doesn't really contribute anything meaningful. He just like wants to be on the right side. Like yeah. in such a Gryffindor way. I the Bloody Baron seems to be the ghost who's best at his job. But again, you'd think that death would dispense with the need for having a job it I, sucks that they work that in the afterlife like docents forever yeah it is you know, they're like eternal monitors. or like the people that shout at you in the art museum hall monitors slash mascots yeah uh, for it's, eternity it's also it's funny and sad I, that nearly when nearly head in the snake reveals the provenance of the hogwarts feast which is that it's made by house elves and he explains that hogwarts has the most house elves of any dwelling in Britain. And Hermione is so scandalized and says, do they get pay or do they have pensions and sick leave? Nearly headless. It Nick is a dumb thing literally to say. laughs his head off. <laughs> uh, and like flops over. He thinks it's so fucking hilarious. Uh, I, I mean, it is a, it's a dumb question, Hermione. You know the answer to that. No. Well, she wants to like maybe, just maybe like under Dumbledore, they do things a little better. Uh, well, I mean, okay. God, now we're getting into the like, but slaves were treated well. Dumbledore does treat the Hogwarts house elves significantly better than like the Malfoys, but it doesn't matter because they're not free. Well, I, I just think it's it's funny that 
because Nick is I forget how how old is he again? What what anniversary of his death were they celebrating? I forget, but he's old af. He's like from around the English Civil War yeah. or something like that. So I think that's when he got his head chopped off. I think so, some something something like that. I don't remember the exact dates. Some but like Tudor he's quite, shit. Yeah, he's quite uh, he's quite old. Well, he's not old because he's dead. So age means nothing to him. But it's funny that clearly they would have had house elves back then. Or maybe not clearly. I don't know why that's funny. I don't know what I'm trying to say. Oh, just that Nick is like super pre-modern. Yeah. And he's just he like, is. lol, I don't even think regular people should get pensions. <laughs> you know? Like, it's true. <laughs> I, pre- um, I pre-exist the welfare state. Like, <laughs> I think that's weird. I think we should bring back uh, beheadings, probably. Maybe. Maybe um, not. I just like, mostly I, I just think it's funny because Nick is like actually old school. Yeah, the oldest of schools. Mm-hmm. He's hundreds and hundreds of old. What? No, this is. I think this may that this one might have gone a little off the rails. That's fine. Well, so that brings up the an interesting and important little silvery strand to put into the pensive, which is that indeed the house elf theme um, continues in this chapter. So first of all, we are beginning to see that that's going to play a major role in this book. That Hermione is serious about house elf rights in as much as she can be as a like an early teen um and also yeah that the entire wizarding world is in fact run on slave labor even this like bastion of like hashtag like liberal education runs on slaves they come out at night to do a bit of cleaning See to the fires and so on. I mean, you're not supposed to see them, are you? That's the mark of a good house elf, isn't it? That you don't know it's there. Hermione stared at him. But they get paid, she said. They get holidays, don't they? And and sick leave and pensions and everything. Nearly headless Nick chortled so much that his ruff slipped and his head flopped off, dangling on the inch or so of ghostly skin and muscle that still attached it to his neck. Sick leave and pensions? he said, pushing his head back onto his shoulders and securing it once more with his ruff. House elves don't want sick leave and pensions. Hermione looked down at her hardly-touched plate of food, then put her knife and fork down upon it and pushed it away from her. Oh, come on, er, my knee, said Ron, accidentally spraying Harry with bits of Yorkshire pudding. Whoops, sorry, Harry, he swallowed. You won't get them sick leave by starving yourself. Slave labor, said Hermione, breathing hard through her nose. That's what made this dinner, slave labor. And she refused to eat another bite. It's like that moment you have when you're, I remember learning and I think they've gotten a lot better about this, actually. But, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. I remember learning about Nike's sweatshops as, like, a second grader. And being, like, so fucking shocked and infuriated that something that was in my world was in any way connected to that kind of, like, misery. And, you know, it's just, like, that thing where you start to have, like, your consciousness raised a little bit and it just ruins everything everything and Hermione's like ah fuck I can't eat now but eventually she does return to eating well yeah because she doesn't like die right but she comes up with a plan like to her credit like she she sees this shit through this year um I'm glad that she doesn't die on a hunger strike because that would like ruin the books but you know what I mean mean, yeah it's yeah it's an interesting 
it's an interesting magical analog to the moment when you realize that your comfortable life is kind of, it's propped up on these incredibly like very unjust and systems which I, I mean, actually you know, let me mention something because that is a that is a uniquely upper middle class white experience that's true people that are not alex and i knew that a lot earlier than we did i'm sure it's like that snl sketch and this like there's like overall commentary about this where like white liberals were super shocked by trump and people of color were like yeah guys it's been racist here for a while anyway so hermione's like God damn it. It turns out it's all slaves all the way down. Shit. Like, what am I going to do? I feel worse for the house elves, but that's rough. Consciousness raising is exhausting. She's so much more thoughtful than any of the other people her age. Like, to an absurd degree. So. Yeah. And yeah. And it's just, just that, yeah, this, this moment where it's like, oh, the shit in, like, life doesn't just appear out of thin air. Like, yeah. Even though it literally does in yeah. this scene. It gets made. Well, I mean, you know, our clothes may as well, like, that's true. Just appear, you know, like yeah. a lot of there's a lot of invisible supply chains. There are, you know, like yeah. Amazon workers. It's true. You that know, is are another treated invisible. Particularly well. Um, yeah. No, you're right. You're right. This and is like it's stuff a, it's just a, appears. It's an experience of capitalism that it doesn't ever occur to you that oppression goes into the cheap and easy to access goods that prop up our daily lives so yeah Hermione's like definitely having that experience um and Ron is just hungry yeah Ron's main character trait in like a lot of this book is hunger (laughs) (laughs) which is just like really funny on the train he's fucking hungry he gets the feast he's just fucking hungry he like does this really rude thing where he doesn't take Hermione seriously as like an intellect or a thinker. And so he's like wafting the treacle tart smell like in her direction like, ooh, don't you want to eat Hermione? In this like really douchey way. Although like I'll give him a little credit. I think there is like some buried in the kind of like meathead aspect of that. There's like some genuine care. Like He doesn't want Hermione to be hungry because he loves her. But the way he demonstrates that is just total douchebaggery. And nobody takes Hermione's thing seriously. And uh, that, like, sucks. It's funny that Maldi is, like, super weirded out by having to call a cab. But she's cool with, like, Amos's head just popping up in her fireplace. I don't know. The telephone actually seems, like, maybe more convenient than... It's also funny, though, that Harry... Every time Harry is, like, totally staggered by seeing one of these things, (laughs) I'm just like, is a head in a fireplace the most shocking thing you've seen even this week? Yeah, you saw, uh, like, Vila enchanted you into almost jumping off a balcony, man. Yeah, Uh, I mean, you saw, like, fuck tons of hate crimes involving magic, so I don't know (laughs) that the head in the fire communication method is the weirdest thing that's happened lately he's our stand-in though he is you know it's also just funny that molly is like no please amos have a piece of toast and then she just has to like awkwardly like clamp it between his lips because he doesn't have hands because it's just his head (laughs) and my question is like does that toast like make it back through the fireplace like i don't no i think his head is in the flame somehow I don't know how this is working. I don't either. I don't actually really understand the magic this, of that. Is this administered by, is it similar to the flu network? I think it's like flu powder, but it's just something. But I I guess I don't understand. Or has if he just stuck his head in? He's right. He's like not all the way there. Is he, but my question is like, is he, 
well, I guess we answer that with the toast is like if he's like physically there or if it's sort of like a hologram. No, he's clearly physically he's there. Physically transported. Yeah. Although I don't know if the toast is still in the fireplace Does or the if it's toast somehow get in burnt up? his fireplace. Yeah, or is it in his, I don't know. Or wherever like, he's put his head. The toast is weirdly like Schrodinger's cat. It's like Where is the simultaneously toast? like Where there is and head? not there. Is Amos the same person when he pulls his head back out of the fireplace? With the toast or without the toast? Yeah. A lot of questions about that particular communication method. Also, yeah, phones are easier. It's except, you know what? You can't get toast on the phone. That is a design flaw. And yeah. as we have learned from, is it T.I. that has that song, Kiss Me Through the Phone, which you also can't do. So another <laughs> design flaw. Whose song is Kiss Me Through the Phone? It doesn't matter. One of you will tell us. Um, you can't do it. You can kiss through the fire, maybe. Yeah, I bet you can. I bet there's probably like fire sex hotlines that you could call. Oh my God, world. wait, that's really interesting. Possibly. If like a woman's like face like shows up to... Ugh, like talk do, to you or do whatever Ugh. since you can put things into people's mouths alex but yeah I, it's true it's yeah. true it's a weird uh, like fireplace glory hole situation so you started it um gross i wish wow. we hadn't gone down that road <laughs> that got kinky uh except these books don't ever get like no. that harry uh, has a dream about cho that's true it's like the hottest it's Percy's gotten yet like, penelope and i need to use the fireplace tonight <laughs> so good (laughs) fucking percy's alternate reality on the quibbler podcast percy's been spending a lot of time just standing in front of the fire (laughs) (laughs) disgusting (laughs) um okay one last thing in the pensive is it's so there's this conversation on the train about the other wizarding schools and hermione very know-it-all lee is like, oh, well, nobody knows where they are because they're unplottable and wizards are, like, secretive and, um, like, we don't even know what country Durmstrang is in. And it's just, like, wizards have this really interesting aspect of their culture that is this very, 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 very high threshold of, like, secrecy and privacy. And I think that comes from, like, a long, fraught relationship with the non-magical world. Like, they have the statute of secrecy, and it's just, like, a really ingrained part of their culture. But it's fucking weird that you just, like, it's like, oh, yeah, no, there's this, like, school Harvard, and it's supposed to be very good. Where is it? I don't fucking know. Like, it's just weird that you can just go to these schools. To me, it was kind of a play on school rivalries. Like, the univer- in Arizona, the University of Arizona, where we went, ASU, Arizona State University, arrivals, and each school would, like, each school has a mountain with an A on it outside of the school, and each school would, like, try to go paint the other school's A, their colors. Yeah, but each so, of us knew where the other one's mountain was. Yeah, I know, but they were if you were wizards, maybe you would hide the mountain so that no one could, like, turn your A, like, maroon and gold. That's true. I don't know. I, do, I just... Th- Although it seems like... I don't know they what have, secrets... They, they do have secrets, though. They have um, a lot... Everything is a secret. Like, to, well, you said earlier, like, it's a secret that the sorting hat even exists. Right. So yeah, they no place one's... a really, 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 really high emphasis on secrecy and privacy in a way that I find, it's just like an interesting part of wizarding culture. I mean, it's also the opposite of like contemporary muggle culture. Like the idea that something wouldn't be on Google Maps. Actually, we <laughs> were in Chicago last weekend. And one of the things that was most infuriating about Chicago is for some reason, there's this weird like Google Maps vortex where it's kind of hard to use it to get around. And muggles are just the absolute off 
opposite. We're just like, not only do I want to know where that thing is, I want everyone to be able to see the little blue dot that is where I am. My sister's apartment is unplottable. Oh, that's awesome. Annie's a witch! Uh, oh my god. It is unplottable, though. It is unplottable. You can't take an Uber there. No, because they can't find it because it's not on the fucking map because Annie went to Hogwarts. Okay, so that's a conspiracy theory that <laughs> is now fully formed in my mind. Okay, so that's the pensive. Let's talk about the sorting. A thousand years or more ago when I was newly sown... There lived four wizards of renown, whose names are still well known. Bold Gryffindor, Fun Wildmoor, Fair Ravenclaw from Glen, Sweet Hufflepuff from Valley Broad, Shrewd Slytherin from Fen. They shared a wish, a hope, a dream, they hatched a daring plan. To educate young sorcerers, thus Hogwarts School began. Now each of these four founders formed their own house for each, did value different virtues in the ones they had to teach. By Gryffindor the bravest were, prized far beyond the rest, for Ravenclaw the cleverest would always be the best. For Hufflepuff hard workers were most worthy of admission, and power-hungry Slytherin loved those of great ambition. While still alive they did divide their favourites from the throng, yet how to pick the worthy ones when they were dead and gone? T'was Gryffindor who found the way, he whipped me off his head. The founders put some brains in me, so I could choose instead. Now slip me snug around your ears, I've never yet been wrong. I'll have a look inside your mind and tell where you belong. What do you think about the sorting? Well, it's the first time we've seen one in, except like since book one. Yeah, because Harry has been absent. Through various bizarre What plot. happened in the last one? In the last one, he was talking to Professor McGonagall about how Sirius Black was after him or whatever. Uh, all right. Like about how there were all these like special. Right. And then they missed it for, because they were on their crazy like car, car adventure. Car adventure. Um, Joyride. So this is actually related to one of the letters we read about Slytherins. There's this moment that I find pretty mean spirited, which is when the first, the first, first year gets sorted into Slytherin. His name is Malcolm Baddock. Name and, starts with bad. Well, yeah. B A D. He's he's a, Malcolm's a bad Malcolm doc. bad kid. Malcolm bad guy. Jeremy Jerkface. <laughs> Slytherin. <laughs> That's a good point. I didn't even think of that. What I was thinking is so first of all, he gets started into Slytherin and Harry is like right away he's like I wonder if Malcolm knows that everybody evil is from that house. And it's like this poor kid, he's like 11. And then the twins, Fred and George, hiss at him this is this poor boy's first day of school we don't know that he's like a bad kid maybe he's one of these way to way to punch down guys he's 11 it's also just like no wonder boo an 11 year old they super do and it's like no wonder there's this like really 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 intense like slytherin kind of like internal culture you guys are bastards to their first years that's rude (laughs) We don't know shit about Malcolm Baddock, except that he's bad because his name said it. It's a bummer. So I have a question. Yes. There's another line. Oh, we meet Dennis Creevy, yes. which is important um, because he's wonderful. Colin's little brother. 
so Colin is really hoping that Dennis is going to be in Gryffindor. And Harry is like, aren't siblings generally placed in the same house? Because the real, the experience he has with it is the Weasleys who are all Gryffindors. And Hermione mentions the Patil twins and one of them's Gryffindor and one of them's Ravenclaw and they're identical twins. So my first question is, do you think that your siblings would be placed in the same house as you? Yeah. I think so. You guys are a family of Hufflepuffs. I'm pretty sure. Well, what do you think? I, I mean. Annie is going to be fucking pissed if I've sorted her into the wrong house. Maybe not pissed. I think you, I mean, I think probably also both of your parents are Hufflepuffs. So you think probably that you're, you are a a three sibling Hufflepuff crowd. I feel pretty confident. That seems true. That seems true to me. Sarah might be Ravenclaw. Yeah. Annie might be kind of a Hufflepuff Gryffindor mashup but anyway so you guys are more of a weasley family where like you have because i think that i have potentially four different houses in my family you contain multitudes you might have four different houses in yourself well everybody has four different houses in themselves that's That's like part of what these personality tests don't do well it's like (laughs) acknowledge that fact um, but it's so satisfying. It is satisfying. To but be sorted. I do not think that my sister and I would be in the same house. I think Aaron is probably a Gryffindor. I think I think we both like tr- trend in kind of like a Slytherin direction in parts of our personality, the parts that are similar. But I think my I think my like rising house is more of a Ravenclaw and I think hers is definitely more of a Gryffindor. Um, yeah, you did not marry into a Hufflepuff family. <laughs> I apologize for that. What about your parents? I think they're a Slytherin, Slytherin and a Ravenclaw. Which one's which? I think my mom's probably a Slytherin and my dad's probably a Ravenclaw. Fair enough. Don't you think? I think my mom is like Rose. I think she might be like a Hufflepuff Slytherin. Oh, I would have said Gryffindor Slytherin. Mm, maybe. Anyway, but I think, and then I think Kenson is a very, very, very clear Gryffindor. People aren't, are people going to get this part? Well, okay, so we don't have to break it, yeah. it all the way down. Yeah. But basically, no, I, was I was just wondering if you thought, what you thought about your, if you thought that your family was more of like a one pure house. Because I think mine is very much like a, a, a group divided. Yeah, I think we're mostly Hufflepuff. That's nice. It is nice. I'm glad. I'm sorry you married into like a... I'm, just, I'm embracing my Hufflepuff. Well, mostly you married into a, a group of people that have at least a little Slytherin. Each and every one. <laughs> So my other question... We Wait, might... where's Kyle, our guest host? Oh, we sorted he's Kyle? a Hufflepuff, probably. Kyle, what do you self-identify as? Text me when you hear this. I would, I would bet kind of a Hufflepuff Ravenclaw. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Hufflepuff heart, Ravenclaw head. I have a Slytherin heart and a Ravenclaw head. So <laughs> lucky you! So my other question is about... It actually relates to what we were talking about earlier about whether we sort too soon is about marriage in the wizarding world because it's such a closed community that unless you marry a muggle, which like a fair number of people do, but if you marry within your wizarding community, you will marry someone that you have gone to school with since you were a young child. And it seems like from the marriages that we see – not all, but a lot of romantic relationships are in-house. Yes. Um. Right? Both the Potters are Gryffindors. Mm-hmm. The Weasleys. The Weasleys are both Gryffindors. Um, 
Lupin and Tonks are different houses. Yeah, but that's true. I mean, you know, that doesn't, that marriage doesn't turn out great. Only because they both die. <laughs> Harry marries Ginny. Ron marries Hermione. So I think, at least within our kind of like core Gryffindor group, the vast majority of them end up marrying other Gryffindors. So based on the fact that you and I, for example, are from really, really different houses, I wonder if this like kind of makes for um, like romantic challenges because it seems like all of these people are much too alike to spend their whole lives together. Yeah, but there are vast differences within houses. I guess. Like Ron and Hermione are not that alike. Yeah, but they're enough alike that their marriage is rocky, I'm sure. Yeah, you're right. They're both I just think that putting kids in these like personality categories this young and then sort of like smushing them together in a way that is pretty likely to create like you know romantic attachments in school seems like it would make for like a lot of like sameness in romantic pairings that would be maybe problematic well i that's kind of also how people not how everyone meets but how a lot of people meet uh yeah but a lot of people meet on like dating sites now but or apps but a lot of but People meet in like self-selected affinity groups and not like top-down assigned affinity groups. That's true. Like Like, we met at the newspaper. We met at the newspaper, but we both joined the newspaper. Yeah, that's true. So it wasn't like somebody said, you are newspaper people when we were 10 (laughs) and put us in there. And I don't think that you and I would have been friends when we were really young. Probably not. Um, But, you know... You get mushed together and told that, like, these are your people that early. I don't know. A little deterministic. It is a little deterministic. And it means that Slytherins only marry Slytherins, which perpetuates their fucking Slytherin bullshit. (laughs) Maybe if, like, Draco married a Ravenclaw, you know, you'd have some chance of not being, well, whatever. Malfoy is actually a really bad example because that family gets, like, really complicated. But so, like, fucking say i don't know pansy parkinson say she marries like a hufflepuff which would make which would be a pairing that might make sense and then maybe she turns out to be like not actually evil just like has some personality traits yeah and then dom sub neville longbottom honestly like yeah neville could marry a slytherin that would be be really be good for be good for both of them Mm -hmm. so that's what i'm saying like Cross-personality romance is really valuable and I think that the wizards are like stymieing themselves and keeping their culture really like striated in this way by doing this like really, really, really rigid sorting so early on. Yeah, I I think I agree with you. So that's that. So we meet Mad-Eye Moody who... Knows how to make an entrance. Yes, this is a man who knows how to walk into a goddamn room. <laughs> um, let's put a clip of well, his introduction here. Mad Eye doesn't necessarily. Don't, I don't even want to get into that yet. Okay. It makes me too mad. I cannot talk about the <laughs> plot twist yet. Too mad about for, Mad Okay, Eye. for all intents and purposes, until we know otherwise, this is Mad Eye. Because also, there's no fucking difference in his personality which makes me so mad you guys know of which we speak Ugh. okay we're gonna so have this a lot is, to say this is mad eye about mad eye and people that might be mad eye or not be mad eye such as what stop Heather. hey mad eye 
but at that moment there was a deafening rumble of thunder and the doors of the great hall banged open. A man stood in the doorway, leaning upon a long staff, shrouded in a black travelling cloak. Every head in the great hall swivelled toward the stranger, suddenly brightly illuminated by a fork of lightning that flashed across the ceiling. He lowered his hood, shook out a long mane of grizzled, dark grey hair, then began to walk up toward the teacher's table. A dull clunk echoed through the hall on his every other step. He reached the end of the top table, turned right, and limped heavily toward Dumbledore. Another flash of lightning crossed the ceiling. Hermione gasped. The lightning had thrown the man's face into sharp relief, and it was a face unlike any Harry had ever seen. It looked as though it had been carved out of weathered wood by someone who had only the vaguest idea of what human faces are supposed to look like, and was none too skilled with a chisel. Every inch of skin seemed to be scarred. The mouth looked like a diagonal gash, and a large chunk of the nose was missing. But it was the man's eyes that made him frightening. One of them was small, dark, and beady. The other was large, round as a coin, and a vivid electric blue. The blue eye was moving ceaselessly, without blinking, and was rolling up, down, and from side to side, quite independently of the normal eye, and then it rolled right over, pointing into the back of the man's head, so that all they could see was whiteness. Yeah, he knows how to make a fucking entrance. Mm-hmm. Um, we were talking off mic recently about how many different discrete like influences you can read in these books. And how they're just this like incredible combination of everything good about fantasy and mystery and like really great classic children's literature and all this stuff. And one of the things that I was thinking in this scene is that Mad-Eye's entrance for me is nothing if not like when fucking Maleficent shows up at Briar Rose's birthday party and is like, what up, bitch? Cursed. (laughs) Um, Thunder and lightning and everything. Yeah, or in Beauty and the Beast, when she's like, please, may I have some alms? And he's like, stranger danger. (laughs) And she's like, fuck you, here's a cursed rose. (laughs) Right? He's like one of these great evil Mm -hmm. queen sorceress types, like fucking making an entrance. Yeah, or like Vader. The first time you see Darth Vader in the original Star Wars, where he like comes through the smoke. Yeah. In the, the Starfleet battle. That uh, is Starfleet. cool, too. In the, in the space battle. Well, yeah. Like, it's oh, funny, though, dramatic. because these are all villains. Yes. So, Mad-Eye is a really interesting character because he makes a villain's entrance. And the true Mad-Eye is nothing of the sort. Right. So, a little foreshadowing, perhaps. I think a little uh, foreshadowing. Yeah, yeah. Um, Except it's a little on the nose. It is a little on the nose. Except Mad-Eye doesn't really have one, so. <laughs> it's, it's on the where the nose yeah, used to be. I think be. that's what Dumbledore says. Uh, he says something to Mad-Eye, and we can't really, we can't hear it. But and you think, think Dumbledore's saying a little on the nose? Yeah, Mad-Eye's like, Dumbledore's like, that's a little much, dude. Like, can you, like, bring it? He's like, I'm all here for you're crazy, <laughs> but can we just bring it down? And Mad-Eye's just, just like, just never! <laughs> Um, uh, great description of him. I love this idea of this guy that's fought so many dark wizards just having, like, scars on every inch of his body. Like, he's so fucking metal. He is. And we see him, like, sniffing at his sausages first, like, make sure they're not poisoned. 
Um, uh, such a, and you've been prepared for him because there's been this hushed dinner conversation or breakfast table conversation between all the Weasleys talking about like the legend of like Matt Imon. Oh yeah, that's actually a really really tidy and compact way to introduce that character. Mm-hmm. I, and I then love you how see she him did and that. He's like even fucking crazier and, and it's, looking. Like than- that's what's such <laughs> so good about that scene is you've heard about this like weirdo and then you see him and you're like, yo, that's so much better. So that yeah, that's just good exposition. Ugh, right it there. really is. That's yeah, like, it's. Very tight. I love the blue eye that's like the electric blue eye that's like looking. That's like one of my favorite objects in the series, actually. Yeah, it's really good. The, like it's, fucking crazy eye. It's a fabulous, uh, magical crazy object. Movie. Well, as one of our beloved listeners, Molly on Twitter pointed out, Mad Eye is nothing if not extra as fuck. <laughs> uh, yeah, and and he's like, again, I'm just like stealing her jokes, but I'm I'm giving you credit, dear. Um, he's just, like, so fucking committed to this aesthetic. (laughs) He's just like, nah, I'm gonna look terrifying. You can just imagine him being at, like, the magical ophthalmologist, and they're like, (laughs) okay, so you want it to match your other eye? And he's like, fuck no. no. Make it so scary. Make it blue. Make it Make it electric blue and giant. Well, I think it has to be large, right? It's, like, kind of a mechanical... It's sort of, like, a mechanical, like, aspect to it. Yeah, but I think probably... You could make it a like blend in a little better if you wanted to, <laughs> is how I imagine it. Um, I also like, I actually really like the filmmaker's interpretation of it because I like that it has this sort of like steampunk look. Like it's kind of, it's got this really interesting like mechanical aesthetic. So I think yeah, they do a really w- good job. I like the idea of it being bl- like the electric blue. Yeah. Which it isn't in the movie. That's true. You like this like. Because he's sort of dark looking, and then he's just he's like this, this like, crazy blue, blue beat like eye that's just yeah. going like examining everything. Like it's another good um, magical, another good physical manifestation of his character, like the eyes in the back of his head. Because it's like sometimes it just the like eyeball the goes around. the other direction, and, and it's like constantly yeah, constant vigilance as Mad Eye uh, vigilance says. And another thing, Molly pointed out, why the fuck does he have? A wooden leg. He clearly, uh, yeah, Molly pointed out on Twitter, he clearly chose not to get, like, a new leg or even a pro- Like, wizards can do, like, prosthetics, presumably. I don't know, because, like, wizards, like, the eye is a really sophisticated prosthetic, but we've talked lots and lots about how they have mostly medieval technology. It doesn't surprise me that he's got a wooden leg. They They have fucking candles. That's true. So you don't think he was, like... No, I want to like clunk down the I mean, fucking hallway. I bet like, he was give like, "Give me the leg, give me the wood. I want my fucking leg made of oak." Yeah, not don't regrow that bone. I want it loud. That's true. Yeah. It's less that they can do prosthetics <laughs> and more that they can regrow limbs. Also, it's a carved claw foot. He's like decorated it. Oh yeah, no, he's it's, done like it's extra. He's done like body mod. He has, which is fucking cool. No, he's like the. Just the coolest. My thought about the look. leg is maybe if he has been hit with like a curse, uh-huh. it would be impossible for him to grow a bone back. Or his leg like, was made like evil. Like you can do that, right? Right. You yeah, because like, Dumbledore has the that, magical wound in his hand. book six. Yeah. Right. So I was thinking he has some kind of, ma- it's probably a magical injury. I'm sure. No, it's not like he just got scratched. Like something fucked up happened More to than that scratched. leg. scratched, yeah. yeah. No. He lost his leg somehow. Um, in but, a fucking crazy ass wizard battle. 
Okay, and another, this is another observation that we have to credit to Molly on Twitter. Molly did all our heavy lifting this She week. did. She did all of our <laughs> Mad-Eye Moody lifting. So no, seriously, she, she like had a lot of hilarious things to say about Mad-Eye this week. It was a truly epic Mad-Eye Moody rant. Fucking Arthur Weasley, like, ruins everything with his, like, graft. Yeah, he gets, if he had just let the wizard justice system, like, do its work. I mean, there's a lot of problems with it. You know, but uh, Moody could have been arrested and not sent to Hogwarts uh, for bewitching his fucking trash cans. So, but basically what happens is that Moody hears an intruder in the night and his dustbins are um, like trained attack dustbins. (laughs) And there is a whole deal where they want to like arrest him or charge him with something more serious because he's like... Oh, you know, they call the, the muggle police get called. So it's this whole fucking thing. And Amos Diggory quickly is like, Arthur, you have to go over there before anyone else gets there and make sure that he gets a lesser charge, like something with the misuse of muggle artifacts so that he can go to Hogwarts tomorrow. But fucking turns out Mad-Eye Moody, totally mad, 0% crazy. Uh, the intruder is goddamn Barty Crouch. And if Arthur hadn't gone and like made sure that the whole thing stayed hush hush and got swept into the dustbins slash under the rug, you might have fucking caught Barty and none of this would have happened and Cedric Diggory would be alive today. The low level corruption of the Ministry of Magic prevented a proper investigation of Of an actual crime. Mm -hmm. Because everybody just assumes that they know that Mad-Eye was just like, oh, being paranoid. So here's the other thing. Everybody's constantly talking about how paranoid Mad-Eye Moody is. He He should be. He's the only one with the correct level of paranoia. He is. Also. he's the victim of the most insane conspiracy in the entire set, like the entirety of the series. Yeah, the craziest possible thing happens to him in this book. (laughs) He is right that he has enemies everywhere. Also, like, he put fucking, like, Bellatrix Lestrange in Azkaban. So, like, yeah, he has terrifying enemies. Like, she's a cousin of the Malfoys who are free. They will try to have him killed. <laughs> it's like, I don't understand why people think Mad-Eye is just, like, paranoid. It's like, no, these are... At- we just were at the World Cup. We saw that there are still Death Eaters. Mad-Eye is the only one who's like, guys, this war is not over. I don't know what y'all are on about. In my heart and in my mind and in my fucking dustbins, we're still at war. And he's right. He's 100% right. You mad, I bro? (laughs) I really am. I I am. I'm fucking mad about this whole fucking plot, and I'm just gonna have to take it down Uh, a notch. Mad, I moody, fucking Arthur, man. Yeah, it's the low the low level corruption at the ministry. It is the shit slip through the cracks. It's the low level corruption and this like totally insane insistence that like the war is over and that there aren't bad guys. Like there isn't anything sinister afoot. You really can't believe that like three days after the fucking clan rally at the World Cup, (laughs) someone might have paid a visit to Mad-Eye. Like, oh, the Death Eaters have just randomly re-emerged in full force. And then one of our greatest Aurors has like kind of an unpleasant interaction. P.S. The Dark Mark just went up for the first time in 20 years, but he's probably making it up. What the fuck? Fucking fuck, you guys. Wow, I'm very annoyed. Wow. 
Um, who's your unsung hero? My unsung hero would be the cab drivers who take the Weasleys, Hermione, and Harry to King's Cross. Because they're very patient, even though one of them gets viciously attacked by Crookshanks, and they have to transport birds, squawking birds. Yeah, the Weasleys Uber rating is not high. No. If Did you have- guys know that you can look at your own Uber rating? Yeah, it didn't always used to be that way, but I think they added it to the app. Don't it do be- it. Don't look at yeah, your rating. If you want to have you, yeah, if you want to find out your self worth, no, I as just- perceived by. Uber like drivers. random people who have had you in their car for 20 minutes. Yeah, don't look at your Uber rating. I'm a 4.63. Which wow. Was, that I, was, was... I thought I would be a 5. I really thought I was a 5. I think that that was a really radical honesty to share your Uber rating with the whole world. I did. Um, I don't have one because I just use Alex's account because I... Maybe I'm why your Uber rating is low. We actually hadn't used Uber in like forever. No. And then we looked at it to, to like yesterday because somebody fucking told us that we, you can find your rating. We caved. Because the subways are a mess. Yeah. Honestly, I wish that we had flu powder these days. Yeah. So in New York City. So revising our opinions on magical transportation. <laughs> My unsung hero is Dennis Creevy. One of the most significant bummers of this series is that those boys die because they are sweet baby angels. And Dennis, they're very Gryffindor. They seem like pipsqueaks, but Dennis falls in the lake and the giant squid saves him and he thinks that is zero percent terrifying and 100 percent sick as fuck <laughs> it, he's really brave he has zero qualms with almost freezing to death and getting like pulled under by a monster he's just like yo this is my first day look how good it already is for me <laughs> i'm soaking wet i'm in a giant coat and a fucking giant squid touched me so everything is gravy my life is amazing. Yeah. I love him. Dennis. And Colin and Dennis are just so sweet to each other and mm-hmm. are the fuck IP. Colin's so psyched that Dennis is coming to school. I know. It's really sweet. Honestly, pour one out for Best those boys. Best big brother ever. Pour out a butterbeer for those sweet, sweet boys. The audiobook clips that you heard are courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio. They are from Jim Dale's performance of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. This week's episode is brought to you by Filibuster's fabulous Wet Start No Heat Fireworks. No longer applicable to Supreme Court votes. I don't get it. Filibuster. Oh. Doesn't work. (laughs) Sorry. That was... That was deep tracks, but I liked it. (laughs) You can send us mail. See? Now you know we read it and share it with others and treasure it with all our hearts forever quibblerpodcast at gmail.com twitter at quibblerpodcast instagram at quibblerpodcast facebook.com slash quibblerpodcast it's kind of all the same you can sign up for our newsletter at tinyletter.com slash quibblerpodcast that's tinyletter.com slash quibblerpodcast it's good next week we are reading two very exciting and uh, fairly disturbing chapters called Mad Eye Moody and The Unforgivable Curses. So, that's that. See you soon. Thanks, amigos. Oh, hurry up, Ron moaned beside Harry. I could eat a hippogriff. I have only two words to say to you. Tuck in. Ah, that's bear, said Ron with his mouth full of mashed potato.